Hello there. We're Vincent Elliott McNally. Yes, the great-great-grandsons of map-making mogul, Rand McNally. We've recently released our family's first almanac in over 50 years, and now we're setting out on a new journey. Using Rand's old travel journal as our guide, we're visiting his 20 all-time favorite towns. We'll be counting down the greats as given by our great-great-grandfather and want you, the listener, to come along for the ride. In a show we call These Parts, a podcast putting towns on the map. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another After a Long Time Off episode of These Parts. I am Vince McNally, one of your co-hosts, and reunited, and it feels so good. This is my brother, Elliot McNally. He's joining me and will be joining me again, just like old times. Elliot, it is great to see you again. It is so great to see you again, Vince. We took some time off. We actually haven't been together for a little while because we are together so much for our podcast and for the subsequent tour for the release of our almanac, Towns and Country, the McNally Brothers Comprehensive Guide to Small Town America. Yes, listeners, if you remember, if you were with us a few long months ago, we were selling the almanac that was going to put the McNally name back on the map, so to speak, TM, trademark, all rights reserved, and... It's been a huge hit. That's true. Uh, Amazon, they said they refused to sell it anymore because so many people, maybe I read the email wrong, I think they said so many people were buying it that they said they didn't want to sell it anymore. They did say that they ran out of copies, of course. Uh, that I don't remember the part where so many people were buying it. It's just that we only had 100 yeah. copies. I don't know how you run out of the Kindle version of it. It's digital. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I wish that Xander hadn't quit. He was with us. You guys probably remember us talking about our producer and publisher, Xander. He was with us throughout our tour, and he quit. It, it was a long time coming, but Vince and I, I think, are fine doing a solo. Do you, do you remember when we found his half-written suicide note? Yeah, it was a suicide note, and then uh, I think, thankfully, we can all agree that it turned into a letter of resignation halfway through. Yeah. It was sort of one of those Mad Lib morphs. What I like is that Xander is very short, and Vince is pretty tall, and you were holding it above his head, and he was trying to jump to get it. And that was kind of what he said was the straw that broke the camel's back. We had to do with the whole exit interview process after that as well. Yeah, it, it didn't go well. There was threats of litigation. So far, being a, as he puts it, jackass is not uh, illegal in a technical sense. Mm -hmm. So we're good. The the McNally roster of lawyers did not need to be called upon. And we've parted separate ways. Uh, I think Xander is happy at his new job managing a nail salon in Poughkeepsie. So... Uh, all the best. We have it's his dream. Yeah, he really he spoke about it often on the phone, and um, no ill will. Only love going out to Xander and his family. I, I think it, that was you know it was the breaking point for our relationship with Xander and Vince after the tour. You and I were kind of at each other's throats too. I hate to say it. I mean, there were multiple times where I would wake up in the RV and you would be holding a stalk of some of my fresh rainbow chard up to my jugular, almost hypnotized. When you're on the road with someone, even someone you love like a brother for so long, Elliot, uh, there comes a point where it, it gets to be too much. And honestly, I think the fame went to our head. After Townsend Country sold like the hotcakes that they were, we kind of became a little too big for our britches. And we came, became too big for the RV. And, and we, we needed to give each other space. I remember you once, while I was sleeping, stuffed a wool sock into my mouth, and I, I woke to you moving my jaw up and down, saying, chew on this, 
chew on this. Yeah, for some reason we got on different sleep schedules. Uh, and we when you were awake, pranks. I yeah. was asleep. And exactly. So it was a way to avoid each other. What we needed was time apart. And so, uh, as great creative partnerships often do, I will say, uh, we uh, started our own projects. Short-lived, though they were, uh, I think they were really important. Elliot, why don't you share with the listeners what you were working on? Yeah, so I think some people might know this, but Adam Richmond is no longer part of Man vs. Food, and I, for a brief stint, was the new man versus food. Unfortunately, because of you know my dietary choices, food won every time, and so they had to find somebody else. Your, your, your take on the show, Elliot, I have to say, was a breath of fresh air. And, I mean, if we're doing a versus fighting metaphor they might have said that food was like Joe Frazier, but I feel like I was Muhammad Ali. You know, I was dancing around avoiding all of these challenges throughout each episode, which I feel like is more valiant. That's right. I, um, your, and your, your catchphrase for the show reflected that, float like a butterfly squash. Sting. How did it go, Elliot? Sting like a... Um... Yeah, it was float like a butterfly squash, sting like barbecue tempeh. Everyone knows... Barbecue tempeh has a tang that borders on uh, the abrasive. And I think that, I, you know, perfect for the winter time slot, 11.45 p.m. to 11.50 p.m. that it ran in. Yeah, I, I wish the Food Network all the best. But Vince, why don't you tell listeners what you've been working on? I got in touch with my family's roots. Uh, I, I tried to be an explorer. But what can you explore in a, in a world where every square inch of the Earth is mapped, and you need to be in good physical condition to be an astronaut, which I'm not. Uh, the answer is you start your own Netflix original TV series based off of uh, the popularity of the Marco Polo series. I took a spin on Ponce de Leon. Ah, so you were in search of the proverbial fountain of youth. Absolutely, and exploring the Carolinas and Florida in the process. A lot of retirement communities down there, <laughs> interestingly enough. There's a metaphor there somewhere. My show, of course, was set in the past. It was a period piece, um, and it was called Period Ponce. It was sponsored by that new Tampax product. That's right. Uh, and, you know, they're a great collaborative partner. But... Despite the money funneled in by the tampon lobby, I have to say it never really caught on in the way that I was hoping for. Which was just having one person watch it. Was having it actually make it to air. So the entire 24-episode series is available not on Netflix, but it is on Netflix, which is the Russian knockoff. And you can you can tell the site it's not by name but by the symbol of a goose that represents it. So if you're online, maybe you're in the deep web and you stumble upon this goose symbol, check it out. I have to say, uh, you know, it was me and it was uh, it was Piper Parabo. So she was great, and I think she deserves a daytime Emmy for it, even though. Uh, we don't qualify. Because technically on, on Netflix, you can watch it at any time of day. That's Even right. though in Russia, you're required to only watch it at night. Yeah, it's complicated. They're a democracy in work. Anyway, Elliot, so that's what we have been working on. But what are we working on now? Because there was a moment. There was a moment a few weeks ago. And I would say among the most formative moments of our relationship. Yeah, I think it was good for us to do our own separate projects. I wouldn't call them abject failures but they really made us reflect and reunite at our family's house. And when we were there, we were just 
you know, shooting the shit as we usually do on air, as you guys are privy to, we're going through some old documents, some old photos, and what did we stumble upon but Rand's very first travel journal? It was um, kind of like when in Indiana Jones they find the Holy Grail. It was kind of like that. Yeah, he had uh, bound it in gilding and reflective material, so when you looked at it, it was very shiny, very bright, but we were able to page through it, and what it detailed inside was our great-great-grandfather Rand's 20 all-time favorite towns he visited throughout his life. And this gave us instantaneously an idea. Because it was our great-great-grandfather who essentially gave you and I purpose again, Elliot. We, we rediscovered our roots, and on that journey to do so, that's how we came up with these parts. And, and these parts, I think it's safe to say, has changed the world. So mm-hmm. to thank Rand for everything and, and to sort of honor him, to pay homage to him, we decided that it would be an idea to visit each of these 20 towns in order from number 20 to number one and explore what exactly our great-great-grandfather loved so much about them. It'll be great to see how they were leafing through his pages when he visited and how they've changed when we visit them with you guys starting today, starting with town Number 20. Drum roll. I'm really glad that you got that snare drum, by the way. It's heavy. I wish I'd sprung for the stand. Well, keep it going, Vince, because we're starting off with number 20, a town that I think we should put on the map. Listeners, I can hear your collective sighs of relief. That's right. We haven't replaced put it on the map. It's still here. We're still putting it on the map, and we've got a brand new map for you. Yeah, you should have ordered ahead, because... Just like our almanac, Townsend Country, the McNally Brothers Comprehensive Guide to Small Town America, these things are flying off the shelves like hotcakes. This map details Rand's 20 favorite towns, and in each town, you have a commemorative Rand McNally medallion. That's right. These medallions are solid zinc, and they are collector's items. I'll tell you this. The map has, as you'll see as you order them, 20 die-cut holes in which to place the medallions that will create the end product of one of the most stunning centerpieces you could ever hang on your wall. Yeah, so if you have a piece of art above your mantle, in your hallway, above your bed, rip that thing down now and replace it with this. Because by the time you are done with this series of these parts, you will have a priceless work of art. There's no other way to put it. And it should be noted, uh, hang it on a stud because you'll have approximately 78 pounds of zinc hanging on your wall. Exactly. Vince, if you take out that first medallion for Rand's all-time 20 favorite town, read what it says on it. Announcing town number 20, Brompton, Virginia. Okay, listeners, put that medallion in the map. Vince, why did Rand like Brompton, Virginia so much? Well, Rand was a frontiersman, Elliot. He was a man of the frontier. That's what frontiersman means. And he loved towns that were blanched in lawlessness that were exciting, that were new, that offered something that civilization and society didn't always have. A panache, a zazz, maybe you'll call it. Uh, I'll call it a zazz. I'm not sure what you'll call it, Elliot. I wouldn't call it a zazz, but go on. Well, listeners, when you think of a place like this, maybe your mind goes to Dodge City or Independence, the wild, wild west. But before there was a wild, wild west, there was a wild, wild east. That's exactly right. So if you think about the colonies, about exploration, at one point, Brompton, Virginia 
was the West. It was the westerly most place in the United States. But then as time went on, people kept exploring further and further out. The Wild West got even wilder. But some people still stayed in this town and preserved what they believed was the most wildest, rowdiest town in America. Absolutely. And you can see the artifacts of that still here today. Elliot, when we rolled into town, it became immediately apparent what our great-great-grandfather saw in this place. That's true. And it makes me think of what he thought when he rolled in. He was part of a rodeo act, and that's how he came to know and love this town. He came through the town, he met the people, he learned all about it, and it inspired him enough to jot it down in his travel journal, the same travel journal that we're using today, Vince. And listeners, it wouldn't be these parts without an opportunity for you to get in on the act. At the end of this Strange Wild Odyssey, we will be releasing a version, our own annotated copy of Rand McNally's travel journal. What are we calling that, Elliot? Of course, the travel journal is called The Windings and Findings of the Great Rand McNally. If you ordered your map ahead, you will have gotten a blank version, just so you can feel like you're holding the journal with us. It's all blank inside. There's nothing written on the pages. We didn't want to reveal any information. But at the end of this series, we will send you for uh, some more nominal fees, of course, the reprinted, annotated version. Absolutely. And listeners, I know you're, you've, I can feel your worriedness, your anxiety through the airwaves. Don't worry. We have double laminated each of the pages so you won't be able to write on them. So it, you won't have the, the pressure of keeping a journal of your own. Yeah, and, and we don't want you to think that this functions as like an extra day planner now or like a sketchbook or something. This is purely meant to hold with you while you're listening to the show. Exactly. A prop, if you will, much like a rubber nose or a lasso. These were the sort of things that Rand came to town with. And it's important to note that he did so as a very young man because when he did, Brompton was as far west as you could go in the United States of America. Elliot, that makes me want to talk about just where Brompton's located. I think we should do that, Vince, in a segment we call At Long Lat. So listeners, At Long Lat returns, and we return to the original frontier of the United States of America, that is Virginia, the original 13 colonies. From here, you stared out into the wilderness, be they the softwood forests of the American South, or perhaps the hardwood forests of the American North. But here, where the two met, was Brompton. Yeah, there was a literal intersection of these soft and hard woods, and that was the barrier. That was essentially the the edge of the map. You could walk up to it and gaze completely into the forest. People had no idea that there was any more to explore beyond Brompton. Nobody except, of course, the Native Americans, First Nations people from whom the land was torn. That said, at this time... Brompton was the furthest west settlement, and that lent it an air of, shall we say, excitement. There were more than a few yeehaws when Brompton was discovered, and that tradition maintains today. There is a mesa on the edge of town where people go and whoop, holler, yodel over what is now the I-95 overpass into the great beyond, into the unknown. And of course, there were, you know, multiple Native American settlements right below this bluff who were constantly annoyed by the racket these people were causing. But people just wanted to express their 
bravery and express their need to explore the American West, which was obviously very, very far east as we now know. Elliot, when you think of the wild, wild west, what what sort of geographical features do you think of? I'm talking bluffs, deserts. Mm-hmm. You've got your canyons. Cacti. Yes, cacti. You've got tumbleweeds. Mm-hmm. But what sort of things painted the landscape picture of the wild, wild east? The wild, wild east, if you think about it, is not full of these desert icons. There is no chaparral here. It's mostly dense wooded forestry. That's why, you know, riding a horse and creating a whole rodeo uh, had more than a few difficulties. There was a lot of lush greenery to be avoided. There wasn't a lot of expansive stable room. Exactly. Uh, Gunfights, for instance, a lot easier not to die during them. Yeah, if you still take tours around town, you can see all of the trees in town are pockmarked with tons of musket and bullet holes uh, because they were just in the way. You know, it made fighting very hard. If you think about the parable of why the Wild Wild West was so lawless, uh, it was because the crime was too difficult to control, the borders too expansive, Mm -hmm. the people too rowdy. Opposite was true here in Brompton. It was so safe with all the constant cover that law was almost superfluous. Exactly. You you don't have those iconic scenes of the cowboy busting out of the saloon and rolling over in the horse trough for a gunfight. You didn't have to do that. You could just walk down the street and you would be fine. And that's why a lot of people, as more westerly towns were explored and founded uh, and established, people thought that, hey, Brompton, isn't that wild? It wasn't that wild. Uh, The wildness really subsides a bit when you have to retire indoors for five months out of the year because of the snowfall. There's little you can do with duels and pony races and really any rodeo act in six feet of snow. Also, uh, to complicate matters, the rainy Appalachian climate is... Volatile. It is, and that has dire consequences for clown makeup. Flash storms were all too common, and amidst a rodeo rally, when the the clown makeup is washed away. All you really have are several slightly overweight men in a in a pen with a bull. They used to say that the Brompton River, which runs on the east side of town, ran red with blood. But people quickly realized that was just all the clown makeup that was being melted off people's faces and leached into the water supply. That's right. We didn't have fancy polyester red noses back in the day. You had to paint a gourd with red paint. And that was good enough. But it wasn't good enough. When the rains came. The expansive gourd farms all around town also inhibit uh, horseback riding and running and doing anything out in the field like you would imagine out on the range. In Rand's entry for Brompton, the first thing he he writes is, gods, the hills are alive with gourds here. He, he has a crude drawing of himself stepping on a gourd and he's like bouncing around like he stubbed his toe. Gourd's not known to be that painful to step upon. But who's to, who's to say what sort of deeper yeah. cultural meanings could be yeah. gleaned from that cartoon? Yeah. Well, this I mean, this was the Wild Wild East fence. We don't ha- maybe we're used to soft gourds that are really easy on the on the feet and the podiatric health, but back then, like these these were rough and tumble hard gourds. And if you stepped on that, you better believe you're going to step your toe. It's interesting that you say rough and tumble gourds because tumble gourds were one of the main <laughs> natural disasters. 
of the Wild Woolies, of course, mm-hmm. bulkier and therefore more dangerous than their benign and aesthetic Western cousins, the tumbleweed. Tumblegourds could sometimes pick up a great deal of speed coming into town from the hills. Yeah, and if you think of those more hollow gourds with holes in them, as they spun, they might pick up a cow, they might pick up a horse, throw that at a saloon, see what happens. You know, that this was pretty... Uh, harrowing times in the wild wild east in brompton virginia absolutely harrowing indeed harrowing which is exactly what drew our great great grandfather here and speaking of drawing we can transition into talking about drawings themselves and drawing letters in our very next segment vince drawing letters elliot that normal way to say writing letters i'm i'm agreed i'm so excited listeners you may fondly remember wouldn't you like to know our listener write-in segment it is alive and well but now shines on under a new moniker and a strange new twist. We're calling it Random Thoughts. So don't worry, listeners. You still get a chance to write in to Vince and I, and if we have a guest, to ask questions about the town. However, we are also going to be communicating with Rand. And obviously, so no one freaks out, we're not communicating with him from beyond the grave or anything like that. Believe us, we've tried. Yeah, among his other personal ethics was a Ouija board. Um, with his journal, and we we tried that several times, but then we just realized uh, it was a poster with some some letters on it. He had been practicing cursive. It's not the first, nor I fear will it be the last time we've been fooled by Rand's calligraphy habit, but that's neither here nor there. In this version of Wouldn't You Like to Know, we do indeed explore some of the musings from Rand's journal and apply them, answer them, or simply pontificate about them. And Elliot, it's with great excitement that I will start this new tradition of ours. And I'll open up here to a page in Brompton's entry and read right from Rand's writing. This is exciting, listeners. Open your journal that we've laminated several times and imagine reading Rand's beautiful script. It really must be said he is, the penmanship is second to none. It reads, My boots are awash in the guts of gourd, but I am not deterred. For today... We have our finest hour, our first rodeo show. I am most excited. The hogs are now well greased. The show is about to go on. Elliot, what does this say about our great-great-grandfather? Let's try to put ourselves in those gourd-stained boots. Wow. I was on the edge of my seat while you were reading that, Vince. And in preparation, I've read some travel journals of other explorers and... This makes Meriwether Lewis look like a fucking hack. Which I think we can all agree that he is. So obviously, on on this day, whatever day he was running, he was prepared to go out and put on his show at the rodeo. Uh, Rand started a very interesting tradition here in Brompton, one that still goes on today. Isn't that right, Vince? Absolutely. This rodeo was the first, but it certainly wasn't the last. The rodeo continued for a while during Rand's brief stay in the city, uh, but it continues on today. And many of the same events that were present at that rodeo are still practiced. As we all know, Rand loved scarves and bandanas. And you may uh, be well-versed in classical French clowning like Vince and I are, but Rand was the first person to really bring this to America. That's absolutely true. He prescribed to a more nuevo approach to clowning, one that was full of brash action, went away from the mimery of the classical arts, and instead embraced a loud, hooping, hollering, nose-honking type of clownism. Yeah, he was referred to as the loudest clown. He was referred to as that. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting that his 
deep purple malformed boots, wounded and swollen from stomping through guards though they were, formed the basis of the North American clown shoe. Gone were these almost ballet-esque soft flats of mimery. Here was a man in big floppy boots, and he mm-hmm. changed the face of clowning for the better. I think that this is a great example of people saying that maybe the wild, wild west later on in, you know, Texas and New Mexico, maybe that was more hardcore, but it had to start somewhere. It had to start with a prototype, if you will, in the wild, wild east. And when you think of rodeo clowns today, they wouldn't be anywhere if it weren't for Rand McNally. Absolutely true, Elliot. So well said. And if I can, if I can keep unpacking this note, he says the hogs were greased. Now, mm-hmm. if you think about today's rodeos, you think of you know your, your bucking broncos, you think of your uh, dressage, you think of the the wild bull, but you don't often think of greasy pigs. Well. As we said, there wasn't that much room to pasture in Western Virginia. Yes. Instead, they would chase pigs around the hollows, through ruts and tunnels. Yes, the only greasy pigs you'd find at a Wild Wild West rodeo would be the audience members. And so they really tried to embrace these greasy, sweaty hogs um, and make it fun for the audience. Uh, I, th- I think another great tradition, Vince, was his scarf throwing and his bandana wearing something that the Wild Wild West kind of revolutionized later were the bandanas around, you know, a bandit's face. In the Wild Wild East, Rand would wear his kind of like a babushka. He had a a bit where he would be an old lady walking around the stage looking for his greased pig. Yes, uh, we have some performance notes written here in the margin. This is a real treat. Uh, These are like stage directions, right? Yes, it it has in in Rand's own handwriting, uh, it says, shiver lightly. Say, oh, inflection my own. It's worth noting. Oh, where, oh, where has my pig gone? Have you seen it, children of the audience? It should be noted that most children had died of cholera at this point. So it was just kind of the depressed people that were still in Virginia at this point. Yeah, there's a haunting subtext there. But that's <laughs> neither here nor is it there. But where it is, Elliot, is uh, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that his bandana and his scarf were part of his act because yes. it's true. No, now, in, in the Wild Wild West, they will transition to a single-face garment sort of culture. But mm-hmm. here in the Wild Wild East, it was as many face garments as you could procure. So in the illustration that goes with this note, we have Rand's famous babushka clown outfit. And he's got, uh, he's got a head wrap as a babushka. Then he's got the bandana tied like a sweatband. And then he's got a scarf. And that's wrapped up under his arms to create sort of a faux backpack effect. Yes. And then, last but not least, he's got an ascot tying it all together. And you're referencing kind of a schematic drawing that Rand has made. Highly in detailed. Case, yeah, in case anyone wanted to take his act and use it in a different show. He was very gratuitous in that regard. And I think with the scarves and the bandanas, Vince, what we have is sort of like, I would liken it to you know the invention of the bicycle. A lot of people independently invented their own ways to create this means of conveyance, and eventually they converged into the modern bicycle. What Rand had were a bunch of proto-scarves and bandanas that eventually converged into the one that we know and love, the, the classic red paisley of the bandit bandana. Absolutely. 
Rand, the trendsetter, his babushka outfit would later go on to inform the wardrobe department for Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, his uh, babushka lady, oddly enough, was named Tevya. I just am filled with such pride, admiration, and surprise whenever I dip into this document, Elliot. But let's not leave Rand have all the spotlight. We still have time for a listener each and every week to write in with a fascinating query of their own. Elliot, if you would so do the honors of reading this week's question. I would love to, Vince. This one comes from Joel B. in Astoria, New York. Joel B. in Astoria, thanks so much for writing in. Joel says, guys, I know you're traveling to Brompton, Virginia. I'm a huge fan of westerns, western movies, western culture. My favorite thing is to swill down a drink of cool sarsaparilla or root beer. You sound like a wild man. Yeah, this guy's truly off the wall. He goes on to say, I was wondering what the Wild Wild East analog of this amazing beverage is. Ah, what a great question. Yeah. That it really is. It's a fine question. Uh, there are many answers, Elliot. Yeah. So what I think is fantastic is we had a chance to sample a lot of these beverages. I think, Vince, in one regard, you know, people say that the Wild Wild East isn't as hardcore as the Wild Wild West, but because there were more trees and greenery here, you could make a stronger, earthier, rootier root beer, whereas in the Wild Wild West, you know, you're just hitting your dick on a cactus to get a few drops of that sweet, sweet candy drink. The land out west is far too arid for any proper amount of gourd growth. And what that does is it limits the flavor profiles available in your sarsaparilla. So here in Brompton, where gourds grow aplenty, all sorts of different foliage informs the drinking palate. You know, there's a lot of local breweries here. My favorite we went to, Vince, was uh, Houlihan's Saloon. As you know, I have a famously low alcohol tolerance. Even if I over-ferment my kombucha, I'll go on a multi-week bender. Yeah, I'm be- I believe it speaks to some sort of rare form of diabetes. But <laughs> Yeah, I think it's because of the veganism, the, the low vitamin count, all that. It, it just does not sit with me well. And of course, this root beer is very strong and fermented. This is, as they say, not your father's root beer. We can't say that, Elliot. Uh, it's copyright infringement of the most severe kind. We'll edit that out later then. But your sentiment is true. I still remember the pumpkin batch mm. from Hula Hands. Now that that put some hair on your chest in a, in the sense that you would often throw it back up onto your clothes, like <laughs> on the front of your shirt. So the fronds that grew inside the pumpkin would look like hairs coming out of your chest. Yeah, they let the gourds and the pumpkins get very foul before they... I don't know exactly how you make root beer. I assume you press these gourds into some sort of juice press. Uh, they didn't go into it. Or maybe they did. I just was blacked out at that point when they gave us the, the brewery tour. I don't think that proper root beer, according to the FB, according to the FDA, is supposed to have fronds in it. Or according to the FBI. Or any government agency, really. <laughs> Frond-free root beer is the standard of today, but it wasn't the standard during the wild, wild these days. Well, I hope that answers your question, Joel B. And Vince, I feel like this is a great evolution of this segment. We got to talk to one of our listeners. We got to talk spiritually, obviously, to our great-great-grandfather, one of the legends of Brompton, Virginia. But I think we should talk about another local legend. Elliot, let's bring back that favorite segment of ours, Local Legends. 
So listeners, of course, you know and love the Local Legends segment. This is where Vince and I talk to or talk about a person of note in the town that we're visiting, either still living or deceased, that had a particular influence on the trajectory of the town. Vince, I think this particular local legend is amazing because they had such a connection with Rand. It's true. Uh, In a town that was forged on the frontier and overridden by gourd wranglers and rodeo folk alike, there was no shortage of important characters in Brompton's history, but one stands out and jumps off the page to us more than any other. Oh, I thought you were going to say who it was. Yes, Elliot, of course, uh, I speak no other than the infamous small-time vigilante and big-time rodeo performer, Billy the Old Guy. Billy the Old Guy, when you think of the wild, wild east... There is nobody else who is more synonymous. He had guns. He walked around. He even had a hat. It wasn't a cowboy hat at the time because they didn't have those. But he did have a hat. It was one of those tricorn hats. Yes. Like from, like, Washington hat. It was, yeah, like three corners. Um, Sometimes he would leave it at home. You know, it it would get hot in the summer. So it's not as iconic if you think of, you know, like Wild Bill Hickok or something. Uh, But he had one. He liked it. Uh, he had uh, at least one of Rand's scarves or bandanas Rand would make these custom for him. They were close friends, uh, and I think it's safe to say that Billy the old guy was sort of a mentor figure yes. for our great-great-grandfather. They met in the rodeo. The rodeo was owned by uh, slightly off-kilter Bill Pickett. This was before he made the, tr- the full transition to Wild Bill. He was kind of testing the waters. Yeah, he tried out some different monikers. It was, it was slightly unstable. Bill Hickok, it was, um, could use a little bit of mental therapy, Bill Hickok. Mm-hmm. It was uh, under a lot of constant lifestyle-based stress, Bill Hickok. And it was, please stop, you're scaring me, Bill Hickok. And then that went, like, too far, so he pulled it back, and he thought wild was kind of a good catch-all term. As you can see, things were still very molten at this point in American exactly. history. And Billy the old guy, you might think to yourself, well, that sounds kind of familiar. Yes, of course. Billy the Kid would later come along and perfect his naming structure. No relation, strangely enough. He did kill Billy the Old Guy, though. Right. It was an act of mercy. Billy the Old Guy at that point was nigh on 105 years old. They met in passing at a saloon, and Billy the Old Guy, this is, of course, before any euthanasia laws were enacted nationwide, (laughs) uh, asked him to smother him with a handkerchief. They did famously have a duel. Billy the old guy and Billy the kid, but any time they would fire their guns, they would all the bullets would ricochet off trees, and both men would uh, leave unscathed. It became almost a, a sort of a, a charade near the end. On their 100th or 101st duel, I forget, uh, after neither of them have been so much scathed by a bullet, uh, they would often laugh afterwards and retire to the saloon. So, uh, Vince, what was Billy the old guy's main rodeo act? You know, Rand had the clown thing, the babushka lady. What did Billy the old guy like to do? Well, he was, of course, the resident sharpshooter. And uh, he he took on sort of a proto-Annie Oakley type effect, where he would shoot various things off of tree branches or out of people's hands. Now, worth noting, uh, he was using a colonial-era musket, which they're ball-type firing technology, not nearly as accurate as the handheld firearms of the Wild Wild West. 
This meant sharpshooting was fairly uh, inaccurate, just as he was. That's true. I think this also brings up a good point of he and Rand's friendship. Rand was a great uh, wingman, you could say. He would go on stage and distract people for the 35 minutes it took Billy the Old Guy to reload the musket ball. Absolutely. The term wingman, you might call it today for someone uh, who comes out with you to the bars and helps you talk to strangers. But at Mm -hmm. the time, it was actually winged man. Because Rand would often be winged by the errant musket balls. And he would uh, have giant scarves and bandanas that looked like wings. The classic rule where where a term had to mean two different things for it to become a term. Yes. So, uh, as his winged man, uh, Rand would help keep the crowd entertained. And occasionally, finally, after hours of trying, usually Billy the Old Guy would hit something. Maybe it would be a bystander. Maybe it would be a horse cart. Or maybe it would be that one ace of spades taped to the walnut tree. Either way, that would cause a, a hootenanny to break out. And uh, whether that hootenanny was trying to string Billy the old guy up by his ankles or to celebrate him, uh, Rand would join in. And it became sort of a tradition. This is also why a lot of people ended up leaving town and going further west. Uh, Billy the old guy would usually, for whatever reason, shoot towards the east, so it was safest to stand behind him. And people didn't want to get winged by his bullets. Uh, One of his famous acts was he would ask someone in the audience, maybe a, a child that didn't have cholera yet, to hold a gourd. And he said he'd shoot it out of their hands, and he'd shoot their hands off. And he'd, it was a joke, though. Like, oh, whoops, I missed, and I shot your hands off instead of the gourd. After the first attempt where someone actually did get shot in the hands, they would use these clay hands. It was a sort of, they would ha- their hands would hold onto the clay hands, and then the clay hands would hold the gourd. And then, so even if he hit the hands, it was sort of an impressive feat, and no one, uh, no one died for blood loss. Of course, this is where Clay Hands Luke comes in, and he was kind of the pioneer to lead people more fur- further west. Really, all of the great names of westerndom passed at some point through Brompton, and that's why I am so chuffed that we got a chance to pass through it as well, just as our great-great-grandfather did. But before we pass through, Elliot, I, I want to do a drum roll again. Do I have permission, Elliot, to drum roll once more? You haven't taken your snare off of your lap yet. <laughs> It gets better every time, I just want to say. Elliot, I have been, I've been taking classes. It shows. Hey, thank you. The drum roll, of course, is for our final and favorite segment, Did You Know? So, listeners, don't worry. We didn't get rid of this segment either. I can see our inbox is already flooding with that whole uh, random thoughts thing that we threw in there. Listeners hate change. And, and we do too. It was it was a big discussion to change that segment. Uh, but one that we knew that we had to preserve exactly as it was, was Did You Know? It's our weekly rapid fire fast fact segment. We bring five facts to you, the listener, from whatever town we're in. Vince, do you have the first one? I sure do, Elliot. Did you know that even though Brompton went through a really long stretch of being fairly irrelevant, in the host of American culture, it returned briefly to relevance with a popular HBO drama. Huh. That's interesting. What would that be, Vince? It was a short-lived Western-themed vehicle called Wood That Is Still Alive. Huh. 
interesting. I believe, uh, was Timothy Oliphant in this? Timothy Oliphant played multiple characters in the show. It was like his like one man show vehicle. Uh, sort of, yeah. He there was a host of sort of B list characters that supported him, but it was mostly Oliphant. And the original title, the working title, was the Amazing Oliphant. And then after that, it was called Deadwood. But the the scenery was like trees that were still alive, so they changed it in production to mm. wood that is still alive. Of course, the name Deadwood would later be picked up by a different screenwriter and adapted into a much more successful show. Is this what Timothy Oliphant's memoir, Water for Oliphants, is about? No, but it is It is what his manuscript to his daughter, Pink Oliphants, is about. Mm, I gotta read that one. And, and Vince, I didn't know that, but did you know Brompton, Virginia, was actually home to, I hate to say it, but another short-lived HBO show? <laughs> Somehow, even though I did HBO-directed research... For this segment, I didn't know that, Elliot. You may not have been including the right search terms. I know we've talked about how to Google things before, Vince, but this one uh, was even more short-lived than Timothy Oliphant's show. Uh, it was called Eastworld. Uh, yes. it's You're supposed to do plus other shows or minus other shows in quotes. I forget. <laughs> I kept saying to not do minus Eastworld verbatim. I don't know. It seemed like you already knew what this show was and you tried to direct your search around it. Oh, Elliot, we don't need to get into Boolean search theory here. Okay, maybe we should talk about the fact. Yeah, so uh, Eastworld, of course, w was a, a prototype to Westworld. It actually was a short story that Michael Crichton wrote as well. Um, but it didn't have to do with a dystopian future where rich guys go to screw robots or anything. This was just kind of normal people living their day-to-day -day life. It was just kind of like you were in Brompton, Virginia. It was the wild, wild east. But it was modern day. That's what, It didn't have enough legs, is what the critics said. In a literal sense, it didn't have enough legs because mm -hmm. the producer's obsession with casting either paraplegics, quadriplegics, or amputees, it was difficult to film a normal life scenario when so yes. many talented actors, though they were, uh, physically disabled individuals were part of the cast. It was hard, too, because, you know, you'd think that could add to the story, people overcoming adversity, but this director only liked waste-up shots, so you could never see that they had you know, a physical handicap. Strange directive decisions abound. Yeah. Elliot, I did not know that. But did you know that Brompton was home to the original version of a well-loved sporting game? Huh. Besides rodeo, Vince, what would that even be? It would be none other than basketball. Now, you might re remember that from your middle school gym class, they talked about the invention of basketball and that originally it was some Catholic guy who put up a peach basket and you'd throw the ball into it, right? The Catholic thing was very important, yeah. You know? <laughs> the peach basket was nailed to a cross. That's right. Ellie, you know, we went to Catholic school, so there's a lot of people that get Catholic washed in our history. <laughs> if we have that wrong, listeners, please write in. We'll correct it. It's of note that both you and I are Jewish, though. McNally history is a long and winding road, Elliot. And mm -hmm. and like that long and winding road, it same applies to basketball. It's said that the original version involves a peach basket. That's not true. The original involves a gourd basket and the gourds themselves. A pumpkin hollowed out and tanned created the first ever basketball. Wow. I had no idea, and I, I should have guessed because there are so many 
gourds in town to this day, and people um, boycotted the Spalding Corporation. So you can't buy basketballs here. That's right. Not that you would need to. There are so many gourd balls that you can barely kick your way down an alley without accidentally hitting a three-pointer. Well, Vince, I didn't know that. But did you know that you could say our family kind of got its name here in Brompton? Elliot, that's a that's saying something. I know it's a little cryptic of a did you know, Vince, but I think you'll be interested in this. Rand came here under the name Rand Nally. But quickly, as his prominence in the rodeo gained and he perfected his clown act, he was promoted to Master of Ceremonies. Rand Master of Ceremonies. Nally. Uh, and then as he left and continued to explore the world, he changed that to Master of Cartography. And so, as a lot of people know, Vince and I aren't Irish in heritage. It's just a portmanteau of the MC and then the rest of our name. That is fascinating. Of course, I was playing a little bit along for the radio camera, uh, which, by the way, we did upgrade in the off-season. We have a better camera now recording our radio show. We now do record the show. We just throw out the footage. That's right. It's spooling directly into a trash can. <laughs> but I did know that. It's compulsory for all uh, McNally children to learn the origin of the name. But how fascinating is that, Elliot? It speaks to just how malleable and impermanent a name can be. I think it really is a notion of how impermanent a place can be. Of At one point, listeners, this was essentially the wild, wild west, but things just got wilder. So now we have to remember it as for what it was, this prototypical place, the wild, wild east. Absolutely, Elliot. And I didn't, I did know that, and, but I hope you don't know this, because I got one more did you know for me. Oh, wow. I have, I have one more did you know for you. I, I'm glad you had one for you, but I'm glad you're sharing it with me and our <laughs> listeners for that matter. That's what it's all about, sharing, and, and that's what I want to talk about. It's sharing. We talked about root beer and sarsaparilla. But we didn't talk about the darker side of brewing here in the Wild Wild East. The darker side of soda brewing? The very same, Elliot. Wow. <clears throat> it's called moonshine in some parts of the world. Here it's called gourd shine. Wow. So you didn't mean dark in terms of color, like the color of a root beer or a sarsaparilla. You were talking the about opposite. dark in mm. terms of feeling. Okay, I get it. Yeah, dark, dark as in it's illegal and uh, the... Authorities, the constabulary, put away many hard-working Bromptonians because of their bathtub gourd mash liquor. Vince, to give people a perspective, if moonshine is, you know, 100-plus proof, what is gourd shine? 200-plus proof. Okay, I, that wasn't as drastic as I thought, but it's still <laughs> very hot. It's pretty drastic still. <laughs> now, you call it moonshine, you can call it gourd shine, but the thing that eventually stuck as a name for it is shoe shine. Here's why. You know how the Greeks still, sometimes to this day, mash grapes by stepping on them to make their fine wines. Go on. In the bathtubs, you would do the same thing. But gourds are spikier than grapes, so you had to wear shoes. Actually, you know what? Isn't this where spurs came into existence? Not only that, but it's also how a famous American singer, Gordon Lightfoot, got his name. Because <laughs> he, as a young boy stomped gourds on his father's Kentucky gourd farm. And he went on to work in the very same rodeo, pioneered by our great-great-grandfather, obviously riding his trusty horse, the Edmund Fitzgerald. It all comes back together, and all roads lead east into Brompton. Elliot, what a trip down memory lane, and what a great way to kick off this endeavor. And I think we just kicked it off, Vince, while wrapping up 
a great episode with a final segment from us to our great-great-grandfather, Rand. Wish you were here. That's right, listeners. Frankly, we wrote you enough love letters and postcards last year, and we didn't get a single fucking one back from you. So now, instead, we're going to write a letter to the past. To our great-great-grandfather, deceased though he is, we still wish he was here, not just in spirit, which he is, but in physical corporeality. Of course, we don't want to speak any truth to the worshipping of the occult, necromancy, zombification, that sort of thing. It's kind of more of a metaphorical thing, so guys, just cut us a break. And now that that's out of the way, I think we should start our letter with a good old-fashioned, Dear Rand, wish you were here in Brompton, Virginia. A town that was once on the western frontier, but now has grown to embody the wild, wild east. A town that may not have been as rowdy as the wild, wild west, but still had some crazy individuals. Like... Billy the Old Guy, and you yourself, Rand, as one of the first ever rodeo clowns. A town where you might not get caught up in a dust bowl, but you might step on a really hard gourd. And a town that, if you visit today, you might just be able to tap into your own wild side. Farewell. From these parts to yours. (laughs) 